Um, well, the question today is, are you a giver or a taker? And are you a giver or a taker? And, and the best educated guess is that you're a giver. Yeah, the Chronicle of Philanthropy, an organization that started a few years ago in Washington, D.C., does studies on charitable giving around the nation, and they break it down even by zip code. And uh, it was a big deal last year. Lee Summit is well above average in giving. People who attend church in Lee Summit give around 10% of their average $50,000 annual income to charity. Okay? And Lakeland, by the way, in particular, is even above that, according to our financial uh, consultants around here over the years that have helped us do these financial challenges. When compared to the rest of the nation, Lakeland is right at the top in giving. So are you a giver or a taker? You're probably a giver. And well done, uh, good and faithful servants. Enter into the joy of your master, our Lord. You guys are doing great stuff. But you know what? If, if you are a generous person, you probably didn't start out as a greatly generous person. Maybe there's a few out there, but I don't know any of them. For most of us, generosity has been sort of a graduated uh, learning process, a journey, a pilgrimage, whatever you want to call it, but sort of a moving up type of an experience and not necessarily easy and that's what I really want to take a look at this morning with us is how does someone increase in generosity and giving and what I've done is sort of ripping off an idea from Abraham Maslow and his hierarchy of needs you know the remember that guy that we were all sleeping during psych 101 anyway um, so I created this five tiers of giving out there uh, and so I wanted to run the, through those with you. And your job is to sit there and think like, well, where am I on this deal? And how's my giving and my generosity? And to be challenged to move up in that, which is part of the whole Christian uh, life. Okay, so here's the very first one. Let's get into this. Down here at the bottom, down here at the bottom, at the lowest level is the do's approach, you know. Because everybody, you don't have to be Christian to get this one. You know, you play on a softball team, you go to the gym, uh, something like that, and there's dues to be paid. There's fees, there's entrance fees and stuff like that, and everybody gets it. You, you pay for what you get. This is sort of a cost-benefit analysis. I get something out of it, so I pay my dues to church, you know, because that's um, the way everybody handles things, all right? That's just normally the way the world works, all right? Nobody wouldn't think of doing it this way. This really became evident to me that I didn't really realize that churches do this sort of deal, but I've kind of learned over the years that perhaps Churches even operate with this dues deal because they'll hand you out envelopes and stuff and then they sort of sign you up and, you know, it kind of works this way. I never understood how that kind of worked, but I, it came crashing into me at a holiday party years ago. I was talking to this man. It was a very wealthy neighborhood and a wealthy party and all this stuff. And he found out I was a pastor, right? So this guy goes, okay, let me ask you something. And he gets that kind of screwed up face, you know, that we should get when you're a pastor sometimes out of people like let me ask you something. You kind of go, uh-oh. And it goes, how do you guys collect money? Uh-oh, uh-oh. Like, I'm thinking like, I don't know. We pass these baskets and people put stuff in it. Like, I didn't know what he was asking. He goes, okay. Well, that, that wasn't the point of his asking anyway. He just wanted to tell me what he was going to say. said, okay, at my synagogue, they just send me an invoice. They just estimate what I make, and then they just send me a bill. And I think this guy's probably at least making six, six figures, maybe seven, okay? 
And um, I don't think he was too happy about the whole invoice mentality coming from the synagogue, if you get my drift. And uh, I think he kind of thought it was close to extortion based upon his uh, heritage. And he didn't have much to say about it. You know, I mean, what are you going to do? Stop being Jewish? You know, it's that kind of a thing. Uh, so he, I think he was looking for a little bit of leverage and an angle on how he could go back to his synagogue and say, well, the Christians don't send an invoice, you know. <laughs> I don't think I was probably going to go over too well with his friends there, but um, nonetheless, that's the way it, it turned out. So sometimes people, churches fall into this sort of dues mentality, and uh, you know what? This dues mentality really isn't found anywhere in the Bible. You can't really make a case for this whole idea of, like, get an invoice and pay your dues. It never comes down to that. It's going to be one of these other levels that I'm going to get, get, get to here in a second. Uh, but I have to say, I don't think Lakeland much has this dues mentality thing going on. We sure don't have it formally or structurally around here, you know, where somebody gets an invoice or anything like that. But I think we're doing better than this. So let's get to the second level where things, I think, begin to sound a little more uh, spiritual. This would be the gratitude level. Next up from dues is gratitude. The second level there is around gratitude. And Psalm 116, verse 12 says, What shall I pay to the Lord for all his bounty to me? What shall I pay to the Lord for all his bounty to me? Hasn't God been good to us? Don't we have a good life? Sure, we've had calamity. We've had disasters. We've had hardships. But we're also here. God gives us our next breath. We have children. We have family. God's been good to us. You know, you really don't even have to be Christian or anything to kind of get this. You've had a life, a good life. And just out of pure thankfulness and gratitude, people want to do something for charity. They do this sort of thing. It's a pretty almost basic drive inside of folk. It's a sort of normal thing to do, gratitude. And as a Christian then, you realize that Jesus Christ, God Almighty, the creator of everything, of the universe, comes down, is a baby in a food trough just out of love for you. And then he, he goes to a cross and he doesn't say anything, defend himself or anything like that. He's like a sheep before the slaughter. And people like you and me put him to death and kind of applaud the whole thing. And at the cross he says, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And he raises again from the dead. Give us eternal life. You kind of put all that in there and you say like, dude, God is good. God is good. I, I got to be thankful or grateful about some of this in here. So some people then give out of gratitude like an act of worship. The whole idea of the word offering. I'm going to offer up to you, God, just out of thankfulness. And that's in the Bible. Thank offerings and this sort of thing. It's all over the place. People do this sort of thing all the time. So have you reached this sort of gratitude level? My guess is you probably have. This is a pretty normal thing to kick in for most people, Christian and otherwise. Third level. Third level. Ah, it starts getting a little more intense. This one is a discipline. I didn't have the room to write spiritual discipline on here without this kind of piece of paper sticking out the side. But uh, discipline. And around Lakeland, People have begun to embrace the idea of giving as a spiritual discipline. It's like spiritual workout or an exercise or a habit and this sort of thing. It's a spiritual discipline. This is where the authentic Christ follower really begins to get serious and exercise their, their heart. Okay, 
We get this idea from the Gospels. There was a Roman centurion that came up to Jesus. A Roman centurion, mind you. He's not a Christian. He's not a Jew. He's a Roman, a pagan, according to the Jews. And, and he's an officer. And this Roman centurion has a sick and a dying servant back home, far away. And the centurion asked Jesus, who he knew was sort of running around healing people and doing miracles and stuff. He comes up to Jesus and it says, I, I'm, can you heal my servant? Can I ask you to heal my servant? And Jesus says, I would love to heal your servant. And I, my heart breaks. And he says, let's, let's go get him. Let's go find out where he is. And the Roman officer, the centurion, says, uh-uh. You don't have to go anywhere. I know how this works. I, I'm, I'm an officer in the Roman legion. And when I tell a man to go do something, a soldier, he goes and does it. So I know that you are a holy man. And when you say to spirits and anything else in this world and creation, do it, I know it gets done. You just say the word, Jesus. Just say the word, and I know it'll happen. <laughs> Jesus is like, are you kidding me? And he turns around to his disciples, who are all Jews, by the way, and everybody else standing around him, you know? And he says, I have never seen faith like this in all of Israel. This Roman pagan officer gets this just, do the, just, just say the word, Jesus, type of faith. I've never seen anything like this. Just say the word. Of course, the servant's healed. For authentic Christians who are moving up to this third level as a spiritual discipline, they get into this just say the word thing. God, you say it, I do it, I'm exercising my Christian walk. I am working hard at this. I understand you are Lord and master over my life. You rule the waves, you rule my whole household. It all goes in there. You just say the word, and I'll obey, and I will do it. I belong to you. They get this sort of thing. And they get into this whole idea of doing such a, a deal. They're the ones who really do read Malachi chapter 3, where it says, bring in the whole tithe. And they say, it says it, I do it. You just say the word. Pastor friend of mine, uh, one of my mentors, Craig McElvain, uh, years ago, told me a story about a young man that I happen to know, uh, too. Uh, he was a new Christian, and this young man was very excited, and he'd come to uh, Pastor Craig, and he had a spiritual question. He said, hey, I've been studying my Bible, you know, it's kind of really interesting, it's confusing. He says, what's this thing called a tithe? <laughs> and uh, Craig's like, tithe? You mean a tithe? He goes, uh-huh, like whatever. And he goes, it says it's, you're supposed to give 10% of everything to God? Like, does that mean you give 10% of your income to God? And Craig, you know, says, yeah, that's what the Bible says anyway. You give 10%. That's called the tithe. Next week, young man shows up at church with a rather large check. Hands it to Craig, says, here's my tithe check. One-tenth, right? Craig told me this story because this young man had this sort of just-say-the-word attitude. He says, well, if I'm a Christian, that's what I do. Craig, of course, you know, was telling me, he's like, nobody else is doing this, but this guy, you know, he just has the audacity to just obey, you know? Uh, <coughs> Craig uh, was really, you know, at that point, kind of afraid to tell the guy, like, it really meant a tenth of everything you have. He's afraid he's going to go home with a chainsaw and start sawing up the house, you know, or something like that. Here's the 
part 10% of the coffee table or something. <laughs> um, but part of this deal, when it becomes a spiritual discipline, is the way disciplines work is your heart begins to follow your lifestyle. And you guys who run marathons around here and stuff like this, you get this sort of deal. You just go out and do it. Because Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 34, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I have pondered this verse for many, many years. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Because I always want to reverse it. Wherever my heart is, wherever my heart is, then my treasure will follow that. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. Your heart follows your money. And all I have to do is look at my checkbook or my credit card uh, statement, and I'll see exactly where my heart is. What I've been spending money on, that's who I am. Simple enough. And so what happens for authentic Christ followers, they begin to trim away the fat. They begin to make life decisions about what sort of lifestyle they're going to live. And slowly over the years, they begin to design a life that says, I'm going to live on less so I can give away things more. That takes discipline. It takes a structure, and it takes habit. And moreover, it takes friends around you that are doing the same thing. I'll tell you that. Likewise, it works the other way. You hang out with a bunch of people who throw money away willy-nilly and get everything they ever want and all this sort of stuff, and you'll do it too. Yeah? It just works that way. If you want to grow closer to God, if you want to move out of the kind of dues mentality or even the tipping mentality, which would be one down below that, if you want to move out of this sort of, you know, cost-benefit thing and move on up, you'll have to decide about whether or not you want to treat giving as a spiritual discipline and begin to rearrange your lifestyle. It is a great challenge, and it is probably one of the most scary things for a Christian to do. It is difficult, as all disciplines are. Have you turned this corner yet? The fourth level, the fourth level is People take on a spiritual vision. A vision. They get a picture of the future and they place themselves in it. And they begin to be driven by an entirely different motive in their life. This moves to a whole new level out of this sort of uh, thankfulness and then out of really doing this as a spiritual exercise. Here, this takes on something esoteric. This takes on something you can't really grasp because you, somewhere inside of you something turns and something clicks and you begin to say, I am compelled to do this, to live this way. I have a picture of the way the world is supposed to be and I must do everything I can to make it happen. This person is led by a spiritual vision that says, I must live strategically. I have no choice. I have no choice. And that seems to be the part that defines the spiritual vision more than the others. They say, I have no choice. Lori and I came to one of these strategic, strategic moments uh, in the summer. We were set to launch Lakeland publicly. After that point, it really didn't cost anything. It was just people sitting in my living room. And, uh, but we knew the church was going to need money. We needed to hire a minimal staff kind of thing, you know, a music person, I think. Uh, we, had, um, we had equipment to buy, computers, and some audiovisual stuff that we were going to want and need. And so 
we decided that this church <clears throat> and its fledgling, non-existent state is going to need some money. It's going to need an infusion. So Lori and I just started writing checks. Well, Lori was traveling. She didn't know I was writing checks, but I was writing checks. <laughs> and uh, because I just had this vision of what Lakeland was supposed to be. I had a dream inside of me. We didn't want to be just this cute, pleasant little lapdog church, you know. We didn't want to be just some sort of Christian museum. We wanted to be something that said, for the people who had been out there and they'd been to church and been there and done that and got the t-shirt and they said, I've been to every other church, but okay, I'll go, friend or wife or whoever to this one last church. And I wanted this church to be the place where they said, now that, that I can get into. That's what we wanted to be. We wanted to do a church for a next generation that was leaving Christianity by groves. And we felt called to do church. And that was the vision that we had and felt called to. We wanted to be that very last hope church that sunk in for everybody. And so 16 years ago last fall when we started Lakeland, you know, we didn't know how it was all going to turn out, but we were all in money-wise. We didn't know if the same was going to turn out to be some sort of cruel God joke or what. But we are all in. And to this day, I believe God's spiritual vision for Lakeland and the lives that are being changed around here is the hope of the world. This is the way it ought to be. I am still sold out for the vision and how it plays out around Lakeland Community Church. And I'll put everything I can into it and keep working at it. It's all worth it. I can do no other. I have no choice. The fifth and final level I purposely wrote in small letters is love. How do you take an old, tired, worn-out word like love and make it, you know, have force? Eventually, somewhere near the top of giving, some Christians achieve a level where out of love, their identity is in God. They are wrapped up inside of God. They no longer distinguish in a way themselves from God's presence. And they just love. The best story I can think on this is out of the Gospels. Again, John chapter 12. And Jesus is at a fancy dinner. And um, a woman breaks in and begins to break open a vial of perfume and anoint Jesus' feet. And just so you kind of get the, you know, the first century history lesson here, just real quick, and how this would even work, um, you, you ate with your right hand, and you leaned on your left hand on cushions usually or on some sort of support, and the table was low. And you have to understand that your feet kicked out back away, okay? You didn't put your feet under a table. You sat, and so you sort of, uh, how do you put it? If you're sitting to the right of the guest of honor, that was a cool place. If you're on the left, their back is to you, and it's kind of the least favored position, you know, like sit on my right. That's kind of where this comes from. And so, um, but it also is good for first century Palestine where people walked on dirty, dusty, smelly roads with no sewers and stuff, and your feet stuck out back, okay? Nice, during a meal. So you can understand, okay, that this woman breaks in, 
she breaks open a vial of perfume that scholars would say was worth a year's salary. And she was a prostitute. And she lets down her hair, and through the tears and the perfume and the sobbing, she's wiping Jesus' feet. You know how weird that would be? That is a bizarre scene at a fancy sort of, uh, by the way, they were at a Pharisee's house, so, <laughs> you know, it's a very moral crowd. And letting your hair down wasn't any less, you know, of a severe thing than it is now in the Middle East for a woman. And somebody's thinking, get her out of here. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. She is anointing me like some sort of God? It really got weird now in the room. But what we have to understand is in that day and age, Jesus was the only person who could love a prostitute. Everybody else wanted them out of sight. And they were not going to be in heaven. But Jesus said they were. And out of no choice but love, this woman begins to anoint Jesus and wipe the perfume on his dirty, smelly feet. Nobody got it but her. And she cashed out everything. And her life was now dependent upon following Jesus. Your accountant's not going to understand it. It doesn't make good financial sense. None of your friends are going to think that you're smart. They're going to think you're stupid to give away money to causes like the poor and church and things like that. They're not going to figure out why you don't do the same stuff that they do and vacation-wise and all the rest of that. But it's because you're cashing out. It's because of God's love. God's love for the poor, to build houses for homeless, to have clothes for children, uniforms for kids in Haiti, fistula operations in Africa, support small amounts of money that go a long way in the persecuted house church in China. All of it matters. And some of us, at the very top level, just out of love, say, I'm going to pour it out. The power of God's love to change a human life is the most powerful force on the planet. Every day, I read about a different Christian martyr, at least one. It kind of shows up on my phone. And I am amazed every day of the year of the, the link that people went to for the sake of Jesus. Sacrificing their life. Taking on leprosy from hanging out with lepers. On and on and on. It is the most powerful force on the planet. Jesus has changed the world. And when I see Lakelanders who will spend time with students that nobody else cares about or go to Home Depot and buy supplies for rebuilding a house in the inner city, just pulling out money out of their own pocket, not wanting to be reimbursed or anything like that, it just floors me. When I see single moms around here who should not be giving, <laughs> and then they do some huge gift, 
and you can't talk them out of it? I feel like the rest of the people in the room would, that are saying the woman who's anointing Jesus' feet are crazy, and I'm one of the people saying that's crazy. The Apostle Paul writes, Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Who can do this? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, can anything separate us from the love of God? I am convinced, he says, that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, either present or in the future, or any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. And legend has it that Paul went on, made his way to Rome, and by that time Nero was Caesar. And lit him as a garden stake at a garden party. That man says nothing can separate us from the love of God. This uh, giving thing, it doesn't happen overnight. It's a long journey. And I don't know where you're at on this progression. You know, I don't know. I get the vision one. I'm not sure I even totally get the love one. I don't know where you're at. But this is what we're after around here. A strategic life that's built on risk-taking. And I've thought about this now for a couple of weeks, and I thought, what do you tell people? Do you just say, hey, you just ought to do this? <laughs> like, that, that doesn't fly. The only thing I can tell you is you have to take a chance and a risk. You've got to put yourself in a place where you cannot turn back. I mean, think of marriage and children. I mean, guys will go out and cash out and spend everything they have to buy some big old ring for a girl who may say no. That's what we're talking about. You know, somebody around here recently said their baby that they just had cost 19000 bucks. You know, what do you do? You take the kid back to the counter and say, can we get a cheaper model? You know? Or we rent the thing only like a day or two a week or what? But people will pay 19000 bucks out of love. They've taken this huge chance. And life is nothing but a huge risk. And you just ought to think about where are you going and what are you doing with your life? And are you living on an edge where right on the cusp where you have to trust God? Or are we just going along with the crowd? And I'll just bring it down to brass tacks. In the Bible, there are only two gods that are mentioned. One is the almighty creator of the universe that we all call God. And there was another one, Mammon the God of money. Only two mentioned. And Jesus says you only serve one of two masters. Either God or money. Because you can't do both. And all day long, we are making decisions about that. What life do you want to live? Would you stand with me, please? And we will pray, and then we will end with our benediction, the good word from Paul's letter to Ephesus. Father, we lift our lives up to you. We are scared. We are scared to trust you. We want to trust you. We want to worship you. We want to give you everything. But somehow, Lord, we hold out. Not just in money, God, but in everything in our life. We are scared that, that it may not work. That we may end up needy or hurt, or alone. 
And yet, God, you love us. Lord, I pray for everyone in the room, each person individually right now, that you would speak to them about what their life is all about. Well beyond money and possessions, just what their whole life is all about. And what's driving them and what vision are they looking for in life. I pray, God, that this week it would be a huge uh, wrestling match. That this would be a good thing. And they would come out standing next to you and say, you are my master. You just say the word. In the name of Christ, the one who made all this possible. We all said, amen. Would you join me in this anthem? Glory to God, whose power working in us can do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. Glory to him from generation to generation in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen.